The Risk Report with Ryan Huang. The world can be a risky place, and we are here to help you to read between the lines when it comes to personal finance and business, as well as mistakes we can avoid every day. And in this episode, we are talking about unit trusts, one of the most popular and often one of the first investment products that we get into. And like many things, the danger is that you might get sweet-talked into putting money into something without seeing the full picture. So before you start buying unit trusts, let's have a deeper look with Sunny Hamid. He's the Director for Wealth Management at Financial Alliance. Hey, Sunny, how are you doing? Uh, I'm fine, Ryan. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for your help. I'm going to get your you know, expertise to help to define it first. What is a unit trust? Well, basically, a unit trust is merely a vehicle. Um, the name itself tells you very much about the vehicle. It is a unitized vehicle, meaning to say the investors who pull their money into this particular unit trust, uh, they will be given units most of the time. Um, and therefore, they hold on to... Uh, to units of this trust. Okay? Uh, so these units act as the same way like if an investor holds a share, except that now this unit entitles this investor to a portion of whatever this unit trust buys. Okay, So that's number one. Number two, the word trust. Um, because the money is given to a fund manager to manage and invest on behalf of the investor, the investor definitely then wants a third party to oversee that this manager is doing what he's mandated to do. Um, so the most unit trusts have what we call a trustee. So a trustee will actually then uh, be on the side of the investor to make sure that whatever that has been mandated, the fund manager will do accordingly. So mm. there is what we call an oversight on the unit trust and the uh, so-called investment is being unitized. Mm. So Sunny, it sounds all well and good. You're trusting an expert, in this case the fund manager, to take care of your money. And in a way, you're also diversifying your investments because you're buying a basket of different investment products when you get into a unit trust. But there are some risks to look out for. Sunny, what's at the top of the table for you? Well, having dealt with many investors who buy into unit trust, I think one of the biggest risks is a misconception in a sense that when investors buy into equity unit trust and bond unit trust, um, sometimes they see it as a homogeneous product. They think that all bonds are safe, mm. all equities are risky. Um, so, but but in reality, there are certain risks tied to a, a bond fund because not all bond funds are the same, not at all equity funds are the same. Um, so, the, the the risk levels for for these different unit trusts are totally different. You could have a bond fund even more riskier than an equity fund because mm. of the way it's being mandated and structured. Yeah, so you have to really read into the prospectus and understand what you're buying and understand what is the underlying asset. And this brings us to credit default risk. Different companies have different levels of risk. Exactly. It is one of the most important risks when it comes to bonds and one of the most misunderstood ones because you must understand that there is an inverse relationship between quality and yield. The higher the yield of a bond, mm. for example, or even a, a, a unit trust, okay, um, the worse off the credit quality. Because if you are a junk bond, basically, you would need to pay double digits, high single digits uh, yields or coupons um, to, to, to obtain money from investors. So high yield, uh, uh, worse off quality. And inversely, uh, when we talk about low yield, for example, if you're a government bond and stuff like that, uh, um, then basically you have a much more better credit. 
So uh, investors must understand when they're buying to something which has high coupons, high returns in terms of a bond, uh, in terms of its yield, they are buying to something which has a higher credit default risk in all likelihood. Mm. And something on the list as well is fund management risk. I'm just wondering, right, how do you assess what is the level of fund management risk? And also, I guess, tying into that, do you read into the you know percentage returns every year to understand what is a good fund manager? Yeah, several things. We look into, of course, where the fund is mandated to invest in, basically. That means um, whether it's a global fund, a regional fund, a country fund. In that perspective, already we can see different types of risk. A manager who move, who who invests in a particular sector like IT, for example, um, is more riskier than someone who invests at the country level in the US, for example, who is more riskier than someone who invests in a regional level like uh, Americas, for example, or, or even uh, America, Canada, the region itself. And then there's a global, which is the least risky because it's so well diversified. Mm-hmm. So from a geographical, sectoral perspective, you get different types of risk. Then you have the fund manager. Fund managers who are more experienced, fund managers who have less track record, fund managers who have good track record, so you can tell a differentiation there from even reading things like Lipper or Morningstar mm. reviews and stuff. Uh, then you need to even look into the characteristics of the fund, meaning to say that the fund management fees, are they too high? Um, is the fund size too low? Anything below $15 million in a fund, you find something called a total expense ratio uh, that, it, that is very high because the, the co- there are some costs which are fixed legal fees, trustee fees. So if your 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 asset under management, asset under management is very small, um, it, the, the cost is being shared among a very small pool of investors. So these are some things that you really have to look into before we decide on a fund. And son, you mentioned geography just now. So this also comes yeah. into currency, especially when you look at how some currencies can erode over time. Talk to us about the currency risk. And there are options as well. You can buy into foreign-denominated currency unit trust? Yes, so basically, um, currency risk is when you are, for example, a Singapore investor and you invest overseas, just take, for example, in, in, in Britain, in the UK, you'll be investing in a British pound asset, whether it's shares or even bonds. Okay. So what happens if the British pounds incre- pound increases, appreciates in terms of uh, pound sing currency, um, then what you get is you get additional kicker in terms of returns. If the pound increases 10% against the sing dollar, whenever you repatriate that money, sell off your unit trust, bring it back home, or rather just sell off the unit trust, um, you will get additional 10% on top of whatever capital gains you've made. Likewise, if the British pound depreciates, you're holding on to a depreciating currency uh, and an asset, you, your, your returns will be actually wiped off or wiped out. Uh, by the corresponding depreciation in the, in the in the currency itself, the British pound itself. So it works both ways. You could either add on to your return or you could subtract from your return or even mm. add on to your losses, in fact. So mm. that's currency risk. For a Singapore investor, um, one has to be a bit more mindful because in Singapore, the MES actually controls the currency in terms of monetary policy. What that means is the MES doesn't raise rates or, and, and, or even cut rates. What they do is they strengthen the sing dollar and weaken the sing dollar accordingly uh, uh, when they want to control monetary policy. Over the very long run, inflation, if we believe inflation will always be a menace, meaning to say that the currency, the sing dollar will always be on a strengthening path because it's to fight inflation. So if you're investing over the long run, you just have to bear in mind that you have a sing dollar which traditionally, historically, uh, has always tended to actually strengthen over the long run. 
Mm. And suddenly something on my list as well is interest rate risk. How closely mm. should you watch out for interest rates? Okay, if, if it's an equity unit trust, then interest rates kind of play into sentiment. You know, equities tend to do well when interest rates are falling mm. and stuff. It's not a clear-cut formula to, to, to calculate it, but for a credit or a bond fund, uh, it is meaning to say that if you look into a fact sheet of a bond fund, you'll find a word called, uh, a certain number called duration. What that duration tells you is the sensitivity of that bond portfolio to a change in interest rates. If that duration tells you seven years, for example, if interest rates go up by 100 basis point, 1%, okay, uh, correspondingly, op- uh, the bond portfolio will move in the opposite direction because interest rates go up, bond prices come down. So the bond portfolio will go down by 7%. So seven years Mm. duration means 1% increase in interest rates, 7% decrease in that bond portfolio. Likewise, if interest rates come down, that bond portfolio will go up by 7%. So it it tells you the magnitude of a movement based on assumed 100 basis point move in interest rates. So if you are scared of an interest rate movement, you move into a bond fund with, with a lower duration. If you want to capture interest rate thinking that interest rates will come down, bond portfolios will go up, then you prolong your duration to as long as possible, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. And Sunny, just to wrap things up, right, the uh, risk of capital risk. You know, when you look at unit trusts and how they are being marketed, you get a bit of a perception that the materials try to promote it as a safe investment. But how much of a danger is it for investors to possibly lose some of that principal or capital invested? The biggest advantage of a unit trust it is that it, it's, it is diversified. Okay, so meaning to say that typically you'll find that a unit trust will hold maybe 30, 40, sometimes 50, 60 different types of shares, equities, or even bonds. So what you don't have in a unit trust is you don't have a single, you don't have a single uh, uh, default mm. risk. If you put all your money into a company, it defaults you to get back nothing. In a unit trust, if, because you're holding on to about 50, 60, 70 shares, even if 10% of them default, you still have another 50 of them remaining. It is highly unlikely that everything will default. So that is the beauty of unit trust. You get a well-diversified portfolio. Um, um, but what? But at the same time, um, what you don't get is you don't get the gains that you see by holding on to either a single share or single bond uh, because that an undiversified portfolio, i.e. one or two shares, one or two bonds, will give you much more better returns. So when you talk about default risk, unlikely that you'll see everything being wiped out, but you could still see your capital being eroded unless your unit trust is structured in such a way that within the mandate it is stated that this uh, manager will manage it in such a way to either limit the downside or put a very hard type of uh, restriction to say that this is limited to 10% decline, this is limited to 20% decline. So unless you see that, uh, it is open to what we call capital appreciation and also depreciation. Mm, well, a good list of risks to look out for when we are trying to assess unit trust. We've been chatting with Sunny Hamid. He is the Director for Wealth Management at Financial Alliance, walking us through some of them, including fund management risk, credit default risk, interest rate risk, currency risk, capital risk, and a lot of things we should be thinking about. This has been The Risk Report. Catch us in the next episode. The Risk Report is a production of SPH Radio. It's hosted and produced by Ryan Huang. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Podcast, and streaming on Google Home.